Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We are back in the Gospel of Luke, at least for today. Now I do want to give you a little bit of a warning for next Sunday. Um, As I announced a few weeks ago, in Canada, they just passed a law that makes it illegal or punishable by fines or imprisonment to speak out on what the Bible says about human sexuality, transgender, homosexuality, and things like that. And so a lot of pastors in Canada are, are going to be under the fire in what they're preaching. And so pastors like John MacArthur and other pastors across the country have asked American pastors next Sunday to preach on what the Bible teaches about God's plan for human sexuality. And so next Sunday, in honor of that and support for our Canadian brothers and sisters, I will be preaching a message on that next Sunday. But today, we will be in Luke chapter 12. Now, this is a controversial, deeply theological question, and it's probably going to divide you here this morning, so I want you to be prepared for it. There's a huge argument as to which is the best rock band of all time. Is it the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Now some of you, I don't want to hear your your opinions because I know which is the best band of all time. It's the Beatles. And if you have a problem with it, you can see me after the service. No, anyway, I am a huge Beatles fan. Growing up, I remember listening to the Beatles on my dad's reel-to-reel. This was back in the 70s. Then in the 80s, I bought all the Beatles cassette tapes. Then in the 90s, I bought all the Beatles CDs. Now they're just on my Apple playlist, okay? So anyway, we can talk all day long about rock music, but one of the things that, that, that I would be said is that John Lennon's worldview is one that I really, really detest. And I feel sorry for John Lennon because I think he desperately knew there was something wrong in the world, but he did not know where to go to find the answers. He and Yoko Ono had that famous song, All we are saying is, give peace a chance. And then there's his song, Imagine, which is basically his view, his leftist communistic view of utopia. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It's not hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and all the world will be as one. Sadly, many Christians have adopted this worldview. If we just all get along and we abandon those cardinal truths of the gospel, and we all just try to get to a place where there's peace in our lives, we'll usher in this utopia of world peace. But let me ask you a question. Is this what the Bible teaches about peace? What does Jesus, the Prince of Peace, have to say about peace? 
Now, we took a break from the Gospel of Luke over the Christmas holidays, and I want us to get back into the Gospel, but I want us to get our bearings straight because I want us to go all the way back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, because this sets the stage to where we're at in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Some translations say he resolutely set his face. He set his face like flint. Flint is a hard rock that in the Bible often talks about a determination. Jesus had this solid, passionate determination to go to Jerusalem. Well, what would await him in Jerusalem? The cross. The cross would await him in Jerusalem. So Jesus is going with the predetermined resolution to obey God's will. Now, that's the overall context. He's going towards Jerusalem to finish the work on the cross. But in the immediate context, let's just look at where we've been the past, uh, in the Gospel of Luke a few weeks ago. Jesus had just taught about being ready for his second coming. So go back to Luke chapter 12, verse 40. We'll just read verse 40. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So two things here in the context. Jesus is resolute to go face the cross in Jerusalem, and he's just given a sober warning about being ready for his second coming. And then the words that Jesus utters next are very, very confusing. Some people find them hard to grasp. And so I'm not going to speak for Jesus. I'm going to let Jesus speak for himself. And I'm going to try to explain what he means here. But let's read this very interesting passage of Scripture with those two ideas in mind, that Jesus is resolutely heading towards Jerusalem, and he's just talked about his second coming. So let's pick up in verse 49. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house there will be five divided three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, it's not hard to figure out Jesus' main point, but it is a, a very distressing statement that he makes. So here's the main point of this passage of Scripture. The cross of Christ creates division. The cross of Christ by its very nature creates division. Because Jesus says that. I have not come to bring peace, but division. So we have to ask the question, okay, what are the implications of this? What does this mean? How do we reconcile Jesus' statements here with his title of being the Prince of Peace? What, What do you mean, Jesus, you didn't come to bring peace on the earth? but to bring division. What's he talking about? So what I want us to do this morning is explore this passage 
and see three truths that emerge. Now, now two emerge directly from the passage, and I think the third is a truth that the Bible teaches that's in line with this passage of Scripture, but the first two emerge exactly from the text. So here's the first truth. Let us rejoice in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Let's rejoice in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Now, Jesus uses some startling language here. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that were already kindled. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? Now, there's a lot of reasons why Jesus came. You think about it, Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. I came to do the will of my Father. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. But here he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Now, what's he talking about? I don't think right here he's talking about his second coming. We'll get to that in a few moments. But in the context here, I think he's talking about the cross. The fire that he would endure on the cross. The fire of God's wrath. Because notice what he says there in verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now what does it mean that Jesus has a baptism? A baptism to be baptized with. Now we know historically, chronologically, he's already been baptized in the Jordan River. He's already been baptized by water, so it's not talking about a water baptism that he's going to somehow undergo again by John the Baptist. What is this baptism that Jesus has to undergo, and why is he distressed about this baptism? Well, it's a metaphor for what Jesus would endure on the cross. Why is he called a baptism? Now, we saw a baptism this morning, and Brennan went all the way under the water and came all the way back up. What would Jesus experience on the cross as a baptism? He would go under the full weight of God's justice and wrath against our sin. In Mark chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus said to his disciples, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptized which I baptize? Now, in Mark's gospel, he equates being baptized with the cup. The cup that Jesus would have to drink. What is the cup that Jesus would have to drink down to the very last drop? Well, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Father, sweating drops of blood, what does Jesus say in his prayer? In Luke twenty-two forty-two, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus says, remove the cup. What's the cup? What is the cup that Jesus would have to drink? What's the baptism Jesus would have to undergo? Well, let's let the Bible define the cup, especially from the Old Testament. What is the cup? Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you 
drink it. The cup is God's wrath being poured out on Jesus in our place while He hung on the cross. It's the baptism. It's the fire. Jesus would be plunged under the full weight of that wrath. And that's why in the passage here, He says in verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress. How great is my distress. It's the only time that word's really used in the New Testament. It means extreme psychological anxiety or pressure. You remember so much so that Jesus sweat drops of blood. He knew what would await him at the cross. He knew the baptism he would undergo at the cross. He knew the cup he would drink at the cross. Phil Riken says it this way, quote, he was speaking about the waves of the hellish curse that he would endure for our salvation. The waves. Listen to how R.C. Sproul said it. The fire of the Father's wrath would not merely touch Jesus or harm him a little bit or singe his hair. No, All of God's wrath that should be poured out on every one of His people for their sin would be poured out on Jesus instead. Now we need to be very careful here. Just because Jesus is distressed to go to the cross, He goes there with full authority and full certainty, and He does not go as a victim, but He goes as a sovereign king. He goes willingly. In John 10, 17-18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Now this would be distressing. Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He had to undergo the baptism of the cross. He'd have to endure God's wrath, the cup. He would be distressed. But in all of that, Jesus went with a resolution, with a passion. Because he says in verse 49, would that it would have already kindled. I want this to happen now. But I know it's on God's timetable. I've got to go through some things before I get to the cross. So Jesus has a passion to do something on the cross. And notice the language he uses at the end of verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Okay, that's the cross. How great is my distress until it is what? What does your Bible say? Until it's accomplished. Till it is finished is the same Greek word there. What did Jesus cry out when he died on the cross? The same word that he used here, he cried out on the cross in John's gospel. John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed up his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus says, I want to go to the cross so I can cry out, It is finished. And I know what awaits me at that cross when I go there. It's a baptism that I'm going to have to undergo. It's the cup of God's wrath. And I'm distressed that I'm going there, but I need to go there because I have to fulfill God's plan. And I'm going to cry out, It is finished. On the cross. He's going to pay for our full redemption. As Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all, once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, 
thus securing an eternal redemption. The once and for all finished work of Christ on the cross. He had a zeal to do it. He had a determination to do it. He knew it would cost him his very life. He knew he would undergo God's wrath. He knew he'd have to drink the cup of God's wrath to the last dregs, but he went there willingly. So we need to rejoice in that. Rejoice in the finished work of Christ that he cried out, it is finished for our sins. That's what he's talking about here. That's the first truth. The baptism that he has to undergo is the cross. But yet, second truth that we see from this passage of Scripture. Secondly, let us expect the opposition that will come because of the cross. We need to expect opposition. Expect division. The cross of Christ creates division. We need to expect what's going to come from that. Because Jesus flat out says here, what does he say there? Kind of confusing words. Verse 31, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division. Wait a minute, Jesus. What do you mean you, you came to bring division, not peace? We just celebrated Christmas. What, what, do, we, what do we do when we, go, we celebrate Christmas? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How will the Prince of Peace not bring peace but division? Do you remember what Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, said about Jesus? When he gave that announcement, Luke 1, 79, Jesus will come to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus' birth is going to bring peace. What do the angels announce to the shepherds? Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Peace. So what does this mean? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's going to bring peace. He's, he, he, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, all this stuff related to peace. What did Simeon say about Jesus? Remember Simeon and Anna? Simeon waited all those years to be in the temple and he got to bless the baby Jesus when he was eight days old. What did the old priest Simeon say in Luke 2.34? Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that's opposed. Mary, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day be persecuted? Mary, did you know that your baby... I mean, Mary, did you know... Simeon's saying, Mary, did you know that your son's going to cause division? Your son's going to cause opposition. There's going to be the rising and falling of many in Jerusalem. There's going to be people that, that fall before him in humility. And there's going to be those that oppose him in, pri in pridefulness. There's going to be division. This was prophesied about Jesus in Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Mary, you need to know that your son is going to be a stumbling block. Your son's going to create division. Your son's going to bring opposition. For those who have hard hearts and do not repent and believe in Jesus, 
He and his cross will always be a stumbling block. It'll always be foolish. It'll always be repugnant. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. That word folly in the original language means moronic. Moronic. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing, to one, the fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? To some people whom the Lord is working in their lives, you will be the fragrance of life. To others who are rejecting Jesus, you'll be the fragrance of death. So, so you can never be neutral with Jesus. You're either with him or you're against him. Because if you sign up to be on Jesus' team, if you pledge allegiance to Jesus, you are signing up for opposition, division, conflict, automatic conflict. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And Jesus goes right to the heart of the most intimate of relationships, the family. Notice what he says there. The family. From now on, verse 52, in one house, one house, household, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There'll be divided father against son, son against father, mother against mother. I mean, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, you may have perhaps experienced this firsthand in your own family with those in your family who are not believers. Perhaps when you first became a Christian and decided to follow Jesus, your family did not understand. They made fun of you. They didn't understand you. They mocked you. They thought you were a religious fanatic and talked behind your back. Perhaps when you became a Christian, you started sharing the gospel with your family. And they said, what right do you have to tell me about Jesus, you hypocrite? I've known you your whole life. Shut your mouth, thank you very much. I don't want to hear your religious fanaticism. Or perhaps when you began to trust Christ and and that repentance began to birth and your life was changed and you you had a life transformation, your family got a little nervous because they saw the change in you and that brought guilt upon them because they're like, whoa, I'm not where I need to be. And that caused opposition. This is particularly an issue when somebody in a family is called into ministry. I've seen it happen firsthand. Somebody in the family is called into ministry, called into overseas missions, called to be a church planter, and the family doesn't understand. Why would you, why would you take my grandkids overseas? Why would you leave a high-paying job to go overseas to an unreached people? Why, why would you do that to our family? Before he finished high school, he was a multimillionaire. He was the heir to the famous Borden Dairy. You know, a little Borden Dairy company. His name was William Borden. In 1904, when he graduated from high school, his parents gave him a cruise to go around the world. And while he was on this cruise, God opened his eyes to the unreached peoples of the world, and and God called him to be a missionary. And so he goes back to his family and says, God's called me to be a missionary. And they said, no, you can't do that. You're the heir to our fortune. You can't be a missionary. 
You need to run the family business. You need to go to Yale. You need to go to an Ivy League school. You can't do this. So he appeased his parents and he went to Yale. And while he was there at Yale, he renounced all of his wealth. He gave up all of his inheritance. And he wrote this at the back of his Bible. He wrote, no reserves. No reserves. And so God put on his heart a passion for China. And he knew that there were a group of Muslims actually living in China, and he wanted to go minister to them. And so a few days before he was about to set sail, his father became very ill. And his family urged him to come back and said, please don't be a missionary. Come back and run the family business. But he said, God's calling me. So he also wrote in his Bible, no retreat. No reserves, no retreat. So as he's sailing to China, they have to stop in Egypt. And while he's in Egypt... He died within three weeks of cerebral meningitis. He never made it to the mission field. But when his family found his Bible, there was one last word. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. No regrets. He was willing to sacrifice his family, his fortune, his future for God's call on his life. And his family didn't understand. So when you become a Christian, it could cause deep divisions in your family. And Jesus says, expect that. It will happen. If you pledge allegiance to Jesus, your family may not understand that until God works in their hearts. Now, I want us to also be very careful that we do not sacrifice absolute truth for unity. This passage does not sound very politically correct. This is kind of unsettling to our modern sensibilities, is it not? Jesus says, I came to bring division. What are we all about? Unity, togetherness, peace on earth. Why can't we just all get along? After all, let's just... All love Jesus. Now what I'm not saying is that we should not be peacemakers or we shouldn't be unified or purposely cause division, but what I'm saying is this. If Jesus divides and you're on team Jesus, there may be some people you can't have partnerships with. And it may cause division. Every Wednesday, I usually, when, if, if, I, if I'm able, I, I pray with six other area pastors. We've been doing this for years. I love these men. We, we pray every week for each other. We pray for our churches. We pray for you. We pray for our community. We pray for the gospel. We have minor theological differences, and we've had some knock-down, drag-out discussions about those differences, but at the end of the day, we're all Bible-believing Christians that hold to the absolute truths of the Scripture, and so we can have those minor differences, and yet we can come together and pray. Now, with that being said, there are some pastors and some churches in this town I cannot do that with. I cannot have a partnership with them because they've abandoned the truth of the Scriptures. They've abandoned the dogma of the Bible. And as sad as it is, and I'm not just trying to be 
grumpy or mean, there are some people I can't have fellowship with because of their stance on certain things. So we need to expect that there may come a time and place where you just you can't have those partnerships. You can't have those relationships because Jesus is more important. Pastor Andrew read this earlier, 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18. Do not be equally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Okay. Second truth we've seen this morning. The cross of Christ creates division, and we need to expect the opposition that will come especially in the deepest level of relationships, sometimes even within our families. Now here's a third truth, and it doesn't so much emerge from this text, but emerges from the whole teaching of the Bible. Here's the third. Let us look forward to the ultimate peace Jesus will bring at his second coming. Now Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And he's not contradicting himself here when he says he didn't come to bring peace. We just need to understand what peace is. How does Jesus define peace? Peace does, never mean, peace does not mean absence of conflict or no division or, or that, that we just all get along and there's no, there's no truths or absolutes. Jesus defines the terms of peace. And when you become a Christian, you do have peace with God. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When you trust Christ for salvation, you have immediate peace with God. Your sins are wiped away. You're forever forgiven. You're given permanent access into the very presence of God forever. You are in a permanent position of peace. But yet, until that final day when Jesus comes back, there's always going to be opposition. There's never going to be true, ultimate peace until that final day. Because there's always going to be people that find the cross foolish, find the cross repugnant, find the cross offensive. They will malign you. They will make fun of you. They will, they will, they will sarcastically want to get rid of you until that day. And so when Jesus comes back, there will be ultimate, lasting, eternal peace. Now I want you to think about fire for a moment. Jesus says, I've come to bring fire on the earth and would that it would be kindled. And I've got to undergo this baptism of fire. And now I think in the context of Luke, Jesus is talking about his cross. But let me remind you, when Jesus comes back, he will bring fire. How does Paul describe this event? 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10 To grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God 
and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. As long as there are people who do not obey the gospel and reject Jesus, there will be division. There will always be division until that day. At a second coming, Jesus will cast the devil into the lake of fire forever. Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. As long as the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, there'll be division. Until he's thrown into the lake of fire, we will not have peace. Until that final day when God will judge those who've rejected Christ, there will not be peace. But on that final day, Jesus will establish the new heavens and the new earth, and there will be eternal, perpetual peace. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne behold, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then and only then will there be ultimate peace when God makes all things new. Revelation 22, 3-5. This is talking about heaven. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Until that day, we will always live in the tension of the division that the cross of Christ creates. Sometimes to the deepest level of our relationships within families. So what do we do? We watch, we wait, we pray until that final day when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes back with all power and glory. So until then, let us rejoice in the finished work of Christ. He drank the cup. He cried out, it is finished. He underwent the baptism of fire for you and for me when we did not deserve it. Let's expect the opposition that comes from the cross. Expect nothing less than division, opposition, hatred, persecution. Expect it. And let us look forward to the ultimate peace, the lasting peace, the eternal peace that Jesus will bring at his second coming. And I hope you would say with me, Maranatha. You know what Maranatha means? Lord, come. Lord, come.
Sometimes you just get sick and tired of being in this world. And you want Jesus to come back and make it right. And he will on his timetable. And we have that hope, but until then, we watch, we pray, we wait, we trust in his finished work, but we also realize it's going to be hard. There's going to be division. There's going to be hurt. There's going to be suffering. But he gets us through it. Because after all, he underwent the worst suffering that we could ever imagine, the cross. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let's just spend a few moments rejoicing in the cross, but yet expecting the division that comes from the cross and then hoping and waiting for the return of Christ for he will make all things new. Would you spend a few moments in silent prayer? Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful that you did go to the cross. You set your face like flint to Jerusalem and you were resolved to go all the way. You drank the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop and you victoriously cried out, it is finished. Totally paid in full. You've won us, you've bought us, you've saved us. And for that, I rejoice, Jesus. I, I say thank you. I love you, Jesus, for that. But Lord, we also know we need to expect the opposition that comes. And Lord, there may be some in this room today that, that are experiencing firsthand that family struggle, that family dynamic, the tension that comes from unbelievers in the family. Maybe even coming off of a holiday season where families had to be together. So, Lord, I pray for strength. I pray for wisdom. I pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Lord, I just pray that you would protect, protect us. But, Lord Jesus, I await your return. Lord, would you please come back soon? I know we can't control it, and I know we can't force your hand, but we can plead. We want justice to be done. We want the wrongs to be righted. We want there to be true, lasting peace that only comes from the Prince of Peace. So until that day, Jesus, would you give us hope? Would you give us encouragement? Would you give us strength? And Lord, as we walk out of this place today, we may, fight, we may face opposition right as we walk into that parking lot. A text may come through, a phone call may come through, we, something may happen where we're going to need you, Holy Spirit, desperately for strength and for grace and for power. So would you equip us as we leave this place to face whatever we have to face out there? And we know you'll give us your strength. So thank you, Jesus, for being the Prince of Peace, for saving us. And we do await your return. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. 
It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen and amen. Amen. So if you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus and you're not ready for his return and you can't say in your heart, I have peace, I'm just going to ask you after the service, I'm not going to make a big deal where I'm going to make you walk forward or whatever, but if you want to talk to somebody, if you need prayer, if you need encouragement, would you please come up after the service? I'll be here at the front. Pastor Andrew will be up here. Others will be up here to help you. We don't want anybody to leave this place without knowing that you can have that peace with God through Jesus Christ, and you know for certain that you're going to heaven when you die. We'd love to help you in that journey. So let's stand together, and we'll sing our final song as we continue worshiping the Lord. And um, our God will reign forever. Our Redeemer lives.